Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. And as we like to do, we like to test the boundaries of technology on this show. <laughs> uh, we're going to try an interview. Uh, we got John Saltonstall oh, from England. And uh, he just came out with a, a fantastic new book called Nicky Lauda, His Competition Story. Welcome to the show, John. Hi, Steve. Thanks very much for talking to me. It's, uh, it's great for you having me on. Thank you. I certainly appreciate you joining the show. And uh, it, Nicky Lauda is, is a, just a fantastic, one of the most interesting stories. And uh, you look back at, of course, you know, they, they, they made a movie on him. And, and you look at what, you know, the 1976 season and then the, 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 the world championships around that. And uh, what, what, what kind of brought you into this? Uh, what, why, why a Nicky Lotta book at this time? Uh, well, I guess that's two questions. Why, why Nicky? Um, he was kind of my childhood hero. Um, I'd started following his uh, career from about 1973, just before he went to Ferrari, um, when he was doing things with the BRM in uh, formula one that he that he shouldn't really have been doing with a car that wasn't particularly good um at the end of uh, at the end of 1973 he went to ferrari i had an uncle who um who used to run a a magazine distribution business and um uh when magazines were damaged or returned and he used to send them back to the publishers the, the criteria for it being damaged was that he just used to send back the torn covers so of course what he used to do was rip the covers off a magazine called autosport um and he'd uh, he'd give me the inside part and uh, i got the chance to uh, to read a lot about uh, formula one from a rel- relatively early age um and i remember opening a copy of this magazine in early 1974 and there was a photo of uh, of nicky in the uh, 312b3 ferrari and i just remember thinking it was the, the most beautiful car i'd ever seen in my life um and coupled with the fact that this guy who i'd just become aware of who was who i was interested in was driving it that was that was kind of it so i was always a louder fan right from right from the sort of get-go really as far as uh, as far as my interest in formula one was concerned um why uh, why the timing um it was kind of coincidental i'd been i'd been working on the project i've been writing the book for about nine years uh, researching it and writing it because uh, it came out the back of me uh building little 143rd scale replica models of everything that he'd ever raced and i'd collected a whole pile of photographs in the process of doing this um and I thought that there's probably a book in here and I wanted to do something that was a little bit different. So um, I'd taken a cue from a, a book about Sterling Moss called My Cars, My Career that was done a few years back, which sort of was um, looking at all the individual cars that uh, that Sterling had raced and how he got on with them. And I tried to adopt a different approach with the uh, with, with this one, just to say, well, if I've got a photo of every car in every race, let's try and write a report of what happened in every race for the whole of his career, for everything that he's ever done. Um, 
and that took an awful lot of time to pull together, as you can imagine. Um, and I just about got it finished when, uh, when bless him, Nikki, uh, Nikki died in uh, May last year. Uh, and at that point, I got a manuscript and a whole load of unlicensed photographs and, uh, uh, and no publisher. Um, but I, I had a conversation with, uh, with, with Mark Hughes, who was the editorial director at Evro. Um, and we had a couple of conversations about it. And it was about a week after that that we signed the contract. And um, six months later, out comes the book. So, uh, yeah, it all turned around very quickly once it started to happen. Yeah, uh, David Hobbs um, is a regular on the show, and he he told me a story uh, a few years ago, which I did not know. Uh, he was walking um, when he was doing uh, American TV in, in Formula One. They were at the U- United States Grand Prix, and he's he's with his cohorts, and Nikki came up to him and, and said, Oh, David, David, and they started to chat, and they were kind of taken away. Here's Nikki Lauder talking with David Hobbs. And David told him the story that uh, when he was kind of at a crossroads in his career, Nikki uh, came up to David and was wondering, asking about Formula 5000. Because at that time, uh, David was one of the top drivers in Formula 5000. And, and David said, no, go to stay in Formula 1, keep digging. You have the talent, you'll be able to do it. And he did that. And he always thanked David for, for, for kind of, Telling them to you know keep stay with it and eventually you'll you'll get there and uh, just maybe this is kind of a little bit off the beaten path here John um, but for for somebody like Nikki who and in, in those days in the early 70s which is such an interesting time in Formula One with the amount of teams that that were out there it, it you know drivers could kind of have different way more more routes i guess i should say to the top of formula one than they do today don't they yeah absolutely i mean there's there, there seems to be a very uh, linear path to formula one these days you know they they, they, they start in karting as soon almost like as soon as they're out of nappies and um then, then very quickly progress to a uh, through through a quite well-defined route to get to Formula One, and certainly back in the 60s and, and, and early 70s, it wasn't anything like that. Um, Nicky's route to Formula One was um, unusual. Um, he'd, uh, he started hill climbing in, uh, in in Austria, then was racing on airfields, and then race, started racing in Formula V, which, of course, is a an American institution. Um, and, and had been imported into Europe in the uh, in the late uh, in the late sixties, uh, and he was uh, he, he was racing for one of the better Formula V teams, which was kind of um, how he started to really make a mark when he was over there. But when he moved up into the into Formula Three, he um, he was racing for a team called McNamara, um, an American chap called Francis McNamara, who had uh, who had been a GI stationed in Europe and had ended up building. Um, Building Formula Three cars, and as you'll you'll be aware, uh, a, a, a not wholly successful IndyCar project. Um, and um, there was a lot of hype around McNamara at the time. And Nicky and his friend Gerald Pankel thought it'd be a good idea if they got hold of a couple of McNamara chassis and tried it out in Formula Three. Um, unfortunately, the car was uh, far from competitive, and Nicky sort of had a pretty disastrous half season, crashing his way through. Uh, through, through Formula 3 races in Europe. And he got out of that and ended up racing in, um, in Interseri, which was a, 
sort of some leftover Can-Am cars and and European two and three litre sports cars that were hawking the way around Europe. And did that with, um, you know, a bit bit more of a showing, um, but then bought his way into into a Formula Two seat. He was he was one of the first of what we'd think of as pay drivers who'd, um, you know, sort of bought their way into it rather than being sort of picked up purely on talent. Um, but once he got um, once he, he got his um, backside in a Formula Two car, he um, he started to show quite quickly that he that he actually had some talent. And it was it was that that really uh, enabled him to progress from there. We're talking with uh, John uh, Saltonstall, who's the author of uh, the book Nicky Lauda, His Competition's uh, History, which is av- available through Evero Publishing. That's E-V-R-O Publishing. And you can go to everopublishing.com. And uh, Nicky Lauda is always one of my favorites. And the 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 one thing that really kind of cemented his legacy for me was his comeback with McLaren in the 1984 championship. Can you kind of walk us through uh, that real quick? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's his whole comeback from um, there. The, 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 there's kind of two phases to it, aren't there? Really? There was the comeback from the shunt, which was the thing that put him in the public perception of this guy who'd survived a fire accident in 1976 that he had no no right to survive and come back and won a championship from that walked away from the sport in 79 but when he came back to the sport in 1982 what you've got to remember is that the sport he was coming back to was very different from the one he left in 1979 um grand effect had really been optimized at, at that point and the cars were um very limited suspensions rock hard um almost like a you know a, a rocket power roller skate really with um you know so quite some quite powerful uh, engines but nothing in the way of um of suspension travel so requiring an entirely different um driving technique but not only did he 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 come back and tackle it um, um you know and master those cars he he obviously won his third race back at long beach and um, and then as you say went on to the to the championship in 84 i think he was by then his his whole approach to the sport had changed he'd in the first half of his career up to his first retirement he'd he'd been you know one of the quickest guys out there and natural ability and talent was enough to see him through he'd um He'd been uh, teamed with John Watson at, uh, at Brabham in 1978, and when he rejoined McLaren in '82, he was teamed again with Watty, and they uh, they got on really well. And um, Nicky was always comfortable that uh, you know on his day he could beat uh, Watty. Uh, there were a couple of occasions when uh, when John got the advantage, but most of the time Nicky had the upper hand. Um, and John had had quite a good season in 1983. Um, but because of that, he was holding out for a bit of a better salary off Ron Dennis, who uh, who owned the McLaren team. And at the back end of 1983, um, Alain Prost, who'd been uh, driving for the Renault team, very publicly criticised uh, Renault um, for their lack of reliability and um, organisation um, and basically said that they'd cost him the championship. And as a result of that, Prost was sacked right at the end of the 1983 season by Renault. So Ron Dennis is suddenly holding all the cards because he's got the opportunity to buck, to, to pick up a proven race winner who'd been a contender for the championship in 83 for, you know, a bargain basement price. Um, 
and poor old Johnny been holding out for uh, for a few more quid gets uh, shown the door. Um, and everything that has suddenly changed then for Nicky, you know, who's, who was fairly well ensconced at McLaren at this point and had been doing most of the development testing work on the uh, on the uh, on the tag turbo engine, uh, which was the, um, you know, the the Porsche built made to measure tailor tailor designed um, engine that McLaren had got on order for uh, for 1984. So Nicky had been doing all this development work and putting all his efforts into getting a great car ready for the next year. And lo and behold, he suddenly finds himself teamed with this absolute hot shoe in the form of um, Alain Prost. And it didn't take many weeks of the winter testing season for Nicky to realise that uh, that Prost was just simply faster than him, you know, at this point in his career. Um, but Nicky was nobody's fool. And he, he realised then that, if he couldn't beat Prost on pace and couldn't out qualify him, what he could do is he could beat him on racecraft. So he would spend um, practice and qualifying, getting his car set up in the best possible uh, shape for the race, and let Alan go out and win the pole and you know be be the, be the quick guy. But generally, when uh, when it came down to race day, Nicky would uh, Nicky would prevail. Um, Prost had a few reliability issues that year as well. But so when he got to the end of the season, um, Alain has won um, seven races and Nicky's won five, but uh, squeaks the championship by uh, half a point uh, through uh, through skill and guile and racecraft, I guess. Yeah, it's amazing. You know, uh, if you look and, you know, for and, and, and you look at his results, you know, you basically either finish first or second. Uh, there's a yeah. fourth in there, but or or then you know because those cars were, you know, were so powerful and with the turbos and that the turbos were really starting to come in and so reliability was a kind of a factor through with with all all the cars at that time because it was you know early on in in the development of the turbo uh, in Formula One but yeah it was it was quite quite a wild time uh, in Formula One back then and yes I. I Totally agree with that. For for Nikki to to win that championship uh, from Alain Prost is is fascinating. Well, John, we certainly appreciate you taking out time. And uh, for those listening, it's John Saltonstall and his book uh, Nikki Lada, his competition history. Fantastic book, very very interesting. And uh, John, we certainly appreciate you taking time out. Oh, and the the uh, the it is available on, on Amazon and BarnesandNoble.com. Uh, where where else could can they get the book, John? Um, yeah, as the Evro Publishing, as you mentioned earlier, on the publisher's own website at uh, evro.publishing.com is the uh, is, is probably the first good place to look. But yeah, the usual the usual online sources through uh, through uh, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and uh, uh, but yeah, if you you know you t- you type the book title into a search engine, it'll throw you up a lot of online retailers. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, it's been an adventure. It certainly is, and uh, well, we certainly appreciate appreciate you taking time out. Is there anything in the future you're working on? Um, I'm in the early stage of scoping another project for uh, for, for the uh, for, for Evro. Um, we've kind of got an outline agreement on it, but it, it, it will probably be something similar in terms of its format and shape. Um, okay. Different different driver, obviously. Um, not really at, uh, at liberty to say who at the moment, but I, I, I get the feeling that people who like the Nikki book will probably like this one as well. Okay, very good. Looking forward to it. Well, John, thank you, and uh, enjoy the rest of the evening uh, in uh, England. Yeah, likewise, and uh, stay safe, guys. Eh? You know, it's uh, 
an interesting world we're living in at the moment. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.